0: In this episode, I am joined by Jennifer Carawan. We begin by discussing how to enable the translation of more metabolomics-based tests to the clinics, including Jennifer's take on biomarker identification strategies and on working with samples from biobanks and from the real clinical world. This episode also brings you her advice on quality assurance and quality control, where she's an advocate for the establishment and application of best practices. We also take a closer look at a case of misidentification of an analyte and ponder the consequences for data interpretation down the line. Welcome back to The Metabolomist, the podcast where we listen to the stories whispered by Metabolomic Data. I am Alice Limonciel, and this season, we dive into the application of metabolomics in the clinics, and the place of data interpretation in this field. Welcome to this new episode of the Metabolomist podcast. Today, my guest is Jennifer Kerwin. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. You are the head of the Metabolomics platform at the Berlin Institute for Health in Germany. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and the work that you do there?
1: Yes. My original background is as a veterinarian, and I worked as a clinician for a few years before moving by accident into metabolomics, where I've stayed ever since. I discovered I love statistics and really enjoyed the work. So I moved out to Berlin from the UK about six years ago, and the Berlin Institute of Health became the third pillar of the Charité Teaching Hospital, a couple of years ago where we've remained ever since and we're working mainly on translational medicine. And our primary role is effectively to support other people to answer their research questions in metabolomics. We also do some of our own research. Biologically, we're very interested in the heart-gut-brain triad. And how different metabolites are communicating between these three organs and how they may be involved in health and disease. And we also do a lot of research on quality management, quality assurance, and quality control in metabolomics applications. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you. And are you involved in certain working groups in the metabolomics community? I think you're quite active here as well. We're extremely active. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm a a
1: central committee member for the Metabolomics Quality Assurance and Quality Control Consortium. Uh, This is an international consortium dedicated to furthering better quality management in metabolomics. I'm an active member of the Precision Medicine Working Group for the International Metabolomic Society, and I'm a founding member and former board member of the Deutsche Gesellschaft für Metabolum Forschung, uh, which mm-hmm. translates into English as the German Metabolome Research Society.
0: As you mentioned, you didn't start out in metabolomics like many people because metabolomics is is a relatively recent technique, but you really had a a kind of indirect path to it. Do you remember if there was something that you found particularly challenging when you met this method in your work?
1: I found all sorts of things challenging. (laughs) I'd been working as a clinician and I'd been used to equipment, equipment that just works and when you move into a scientific sphere you're asking yourself why you've spent half a million or a million euros on high spec equipment and then you spend most of your time
0: troubleshooting, troubleshooting. yeah it's a um, really interesting perspective yes
1: <laughs> and we had we had lots of problems with a new instrument when i first started a phd and i spent a lot of time staring at chromatograms trying to work out what the problem was in the end i think it really developed my scientific skills and my lateral thinking skills and it's made me into a better scientist
0: yeah i guess that comes from the fact that uh, metabolomics is a very multidisciplinary technique you can't be an expert at everything but you need a language that's understood by many different types of experts that that kind of opens your horizons So, this is a really interesting perspective that you're offering here. When I started in
1: metabolomics, we were expected to be experts in everything. And I did everything from study design right through to my own bioinformatics and data Mm -hmm. analysis. And as I've stayed in the field, I've seen how it has diversified more and more into very specific. fields where you have Mm -hmm. one person responsible perhaps for the analytical side and another person is doing only bioinformatics and another person may only be doing Mm -hmm. statistical analysis and this has tremendous advantages especially as we are getting more and more complex in what analytics we can do. But you're absolutely correct that unless we learn each other's languages and unless we learn something about the background as to how this data was collected, how this data was processed and how it was analysed, it's very easy, unwittingly, for there to be communication problems and this leads to misinterpretation of data.
0: Absolutely. And this is exactly the main topic of our discussion today because if, let's say, the analytical chemist is aware or not aware of certain details about or important things about the measurements. And this is not communicated later on to the people who process the data, either the bioinformaticians or the people who do the biological interpretation of the data. This can have huge repercussions. We will have a very good example of this um, in the second paper we'll discuss today.
1: I think this is the time really to be celebrating different specialities in teams. It's very easy to join a team and see what somebody else can do Mm -hmm. without realizing what you're bringing to the team. And I think we need everybody on board bringing their own specialities, to get the best possible results. Mm -hmm. And that's analytical chemists, biochemists, statisticians, bioinformaticians. We need everybody at the table.
0: And that means that when we want to apply metabolomics to the clinics or to clinical research, then we also need to get the clinicians on board, the regulatory people on board and so on, right? So this is absolutely a big theme that we
1: need to be discussing with clinicians and the regulatory bodies more. And we shouldn't leave out other important groups such as patients and ethical advisors and privacy experts because I think the more that we move into the clinic, the more we start stepping out of our comfort zone, and we, we're going to need to bring more experts on board to make sure that we do a good job of
0: this. Yeah, thanks for this. That's really true. So let's move on then to, to the opinion pieces. The first paper I wanted to discuss with you, it's relatively short in size, but I really enjoyed reading it. It's titled Translating Metabolomics into Clinical Practice, so the, the goal is clear. <laughs> You've published this very recently in Nature Reviews, and amongst several things that I really enjoyed in this paper, you write that uh, metabolomics is on the precipice of transforming from a research tool to a powerful clinical platform to improve precision medicine. So you, you begin actually the paper with this, you begin with the application of metabolomics to precision medicine. So why did you choose? to focus on precision medicine specifically? I suppose because this is where I see the real power of
1: metabolomics. And we know that doctors are experts in diagnosing multiple diseases, but we still have diseases that it's difficult to predict outcome. It's difficult to predict response to medication. And there are still a number of diseases which we label these as clinicians as diseases of exclusion. So we've done every other test and we can't find anything else wrong. And I think that by having a metabolomics approach and possibly a multi-omics approach, we may be able to start subcategorizing diseases and subcategorizing groups of patients in terms of who's likely to respond best to treatment A and who's likely to respond best to treatment B. And I I think this is going to be of of benefit to everybody as long as we make sure that we think about the ethical implications of cost and accessibility from the Mm -hmm. very beginning. True. Very true.
0: And there's also the aspect, I guess, of how metabolomics is responsive to the peculiarities of each patient. So to the the intra-individual variability and the inter-individual variability as well. So how we differ from each other and how our own metabolome will change over time. This is something that even other omics usually don't give us access to. So does that bring extra power to metabolomics for precision medicine? It brings extra power and it brings extra frustration. (laughs) So
1: um, one of the beauties of metabolomics is that you have this large inter-individual variability and we can use metabolomics as effectively a measure of phenotype of the individual. At the same time, it's a very sensitive method and we'll see differences purely down to age, down to diet, down to ethnicity, down to social lifestyle. These all need to be teased out when we're thinking about diagnostic tests. Mm -hmm. And this brings us to an additional challenge of what needs to be considered as a confounding factor and what we could actually consider as a co-risk factor. Yeah. So is age a confounding factor, or if a particular disease is associated with an aging process, is it actually an important part of the the equation when you're analyzing the data?
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting point. You discuss several diseases uh, throughout this this paper, and I found it particularly interesting when you talked about psychiatric diseases that are not necessarily an example that people would go to because it's maybe not the most classical diseases so of course you talk about cancer you talk about like things that are usually in the foreground for many papers that discuss metabolomics but i really like that you chose psychiatric diseases like depression like schizophrenia to to demonstrate also where metabolomics can help and where maybe we need more help because other tools have less potential to give us information can you explain why you chose to discuss these diseases
1: It comes from a a very personal history, and I, I should be clear that we've worked on one or two projects looking at psychiatric diseases, but it's not really our major focus. Several years ago, I read an article in a newspaper about an individual who'd spent time in a psychiatric institution, and she talked about how she'd been treated as scary as other, by the staff. And then one day, one psychiatrist thought to actually do a clock test on her and discovered that she'd lost half of her vision. And from there, they actually did some physical tests. So I think MRI, I can't actually remember what the eventual diagnosis was. The conclusion of this article was actually how staff started relating to her differently once her disease was perceived as physical rather than psychiatric. Now, we all know people who have depression. Some of us know people who have schizophrenia, and many of us also will have uh, knowledge of people or know people personally who have Alzheimer's. I think when we stop trying to divide diseases into psychiatric and physical then it actually gives us a new perspective on how we can actually look for treatments and possibly even cures. Mm -hmm. We're finding out more and more about the microbiome and the gut microbiome in particular is clear evidence to show that there's a direct brain gut link there uh, Mm -hmm. through the vagus nerve, but there also seems to be other routes. And I think as time goes on, we'll find that psychiatric illnesses will have a biochemical and possibly a microbiological component to them as much as a sociological component and genetic component to them.
0: Absolutely, and and besides, so th- there are many places where metabolomics helps us for for this type of diseases and others also. But so there's the understanding the mechanisms and the etiology. There's the diagnostics, but there's also for treatment for choosing which treatment to give to people, knowing who will be responsive to what. I, I worked a lot on depression last year, and it's still amazing amazing to me that. Uh, most people won't respond to the first line treatment, they won't respond to the second line treatment. And so we keep giving drugs to people and we just test it directly on them without knowing what effect it will have. When we start looking at the signatures of of the response to treatments in in patients, in their blood or in other matrices, you start to see that we might actually be able to predict who will um, respond to which treatment and at least at the minimum, avoid giving something that has really serious side effects to someone that we know will not respond to it, and also to directly give people what will be effective for them. And this is important for any disease, but it's also very interesting for psychiatric diseases.
1: And I think this knowledge will also start spreading into physical diseases. So people Mm -hmm. with heart disease, for instance, have a much higher risk of depression than the general population. Yeah. Now, I think many people have just assumed it's because they're sick, but there's some evidence to suggest that there may be microbiome signatures of that, which may be playing into the depressive symptoms. And then the depression is actually potentially part of the disease, not as a result of the disease. Careful what I say here, because this is not my, my speciality.
0: Yeah, but it also reminds me of what you said earlier. Also, when we plan greater projects, maybe this is also a place where discussing with patient groups and with other parts of society that helps us to identify what are the important points to look at is is really important. Because I think the perspective of the patients, of the families of the patients, of all sorts of people and institutions can really help to address this better. Following up on the opinion piece that we're discussing, I noticed there were quite a few mentions of artificial intelligence or machine learning that you suggest they can be really useful for different uses and applications of metabolomics in the clinics, especially there is one I I really liked where you talk about regulation validation, which is often an issue that people face where they like have a great signature, have really good ideas for biomarkers for this disease I'm interested in. But either I don't know how to get into the clinics, or it's too expensive for me, or there are many kinds of barriers on the way to the clinics. And you made an interesting suggestion where you write that there could be a way to have only disease-specific biomarker algorithms that would have to be validated and not the chemistry itself.
1: Well, I should say that the initial idea of having a non-validated test was not mine. Mm-hmm. It came from a couple of discussions, one of which was with Annie Evans, who has been working with Baylor Children's Hospital. So this is the mm-hmm. paper by Liu et al. And what they did to overcome this regulatory hurdle was they started running tests on blood samples using non-clinically validated tests Mm -hmm. to direct where they sent the tests to do the clinically validated tests, if that makes sense. Basically, you run a non-validated test Sure. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and you have have an answer that would suggest that it's disease X. Now you can take a blood sample and you can run a validated clinical test to test Mm -hmm. for disease X. I think it's a great idea because it saves time and money diagnosing sick patients quickly. Mm -hmm. And what you can then also do is you can start building up databases, the more samples you run, to actually start categorizing your unknown samples into metabolic categories that you may then in the future be able to diagnose with specific clinical tests. It allows you effectively to to identify new subgroups of rare diseases. Mm -hmm. Now, this doesn't stop you needing to validate your metabolomics test, but it lowers the barrier because now you're doing this as an in-house validation rather than necessarily needing to do a full regulatory Mm -hmm. FDA approved validation. However, I have a greater vision, which I hope others will share Mm -hmm. that if we could start being able to validate wide targeted metabolomics tests, then we could actually start using these in a similar way where now we've got one test for multiple diseases and we're now just having to validate the algorithm. And that's what I was explaining Mm -hmm. in the paper.
0: Okay. So this, it's kind of the dream, like you have a set of Free biomarkers that would cover a large ground of diseases that you would look for in the patients and then it would point you towards the ones that might be happening in the patient. Did that get that right?
1: Yeah so with the newborn screening which is what Baylor is using this for they've sure. often got fairly extreme metabolic changes but we're, we've all been in the situation where we're finding the same metabolites popping up again and again in various different diseases. I'm actually part of a larger consortium. It's a a EU Horizon grant looking Mm -hmm. at inflammatory diseases. It's called immediate. And we're looking at how inflammation affects the metabolome and can maybe attenuated by microbiome changes. If we can pass some of these regulatory hurdles to have a analytical test accepted as the data is valid. This gives a lower barrier to sure. just needing
0: the data to prove that your algorithm is now valid. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. One one follow-up question on what you said. You mentioned that it's often the same metabolites that are seen to be changing in, in different diseases. Can't machine learning also help us with this? So instead of looking for metabolites X, Y, Z, that we would look for different patterns of change in these metabolites that might be different from disease to disease. And so we can have the same set of metabolites, but the algorithm is the thing that um, that tells us what is really happening, even though the data seems to be the same for all the diseases. This is exactly
1: yes. the message that I was trying to get across. And okay, so... You- you can do it via machine learning. And yeah. I, I think we need to be embracing machine learning more and more. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got data to show that you may only need five, six, seven metabolites to diagnose certain diseases, which then in theory makes it possible to do by a hand. But I'd say, certainly for the discovery stage, that machine learning is a very powerful tool when used correctly. And I, I think one of the one of the challenges that we have as a community is to make sure that our data for our machine learning tools is not only robust but also sufficient in quantity to actually make really good machine learning tools
0: yeah yeah this is going to be one of the challenges i think everyone is getting interested in the topic but there is a trade off a bit between the type of models you use and the amount of data you will need but we need to have enough data to feed most of those algorithms, yes.
1: And it's also about how complex you need to make your machine learning tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, principal components analysis is often described as machine learning, and it's not particularly challenging to use. There's always a temptation to use much more complex tools like neural networks, for instance. Mm-hmm. and the more complex your tool, potentially, the more you're able to find patterns that are more difficult to find by hand. But you're more at risk of not being able to explain the decision making by the tool. Mm -hmm. And this can lead to unforeseen biases in your your data analytics. I I know the machine learning community is working hard on, on, on making sure that tools are explainable.
0: Mm -hmm. And you discuss also in the paper these biases, and I guess in the application of machine learning to to clinical applications, we have the same kind of bias that we would get in in, in any other applications of machine learning, for example, based on sex differences or ethnicity or also age differences that will have a large impact on the metabolome then we would also have to have training sets that represent a large enough proportion of the population or at least that define which part of the population was addressed that we know where to apply it afterwards. So we have
1: have these biases and you also have the unexpected biases. Um, There's a famous example of a machine learning tool for, I think it was pneumonia, and they wanted to predict which patients should spend time in the ICU and which patients could just remain on the normal ward. Mm -hmm. And they found to their horror when they started implementing it, that it was saying that the sickest patients could stay on the ward. I think particularly patients with asthma. And when they started investigating why, it turned out that their machine learning was using data where effectively the doctors were making a decision early on to send patients with asthma to the ICU, and so they were getting better. And the machine learning tool was misinterpreting that as they shouldn't have been in the ICU in the first place. So it's a beautiful example of wow. why you really have to think about the data and not just accept what the computer is telling you.
0: Yes, it's a great example. Are there other aspects of the, of the paper you would like to discuss? So one of the things that we as
1: a metabolomics community are actually enthusiastic about is data sharing. And for this vision of transferring metabolomics into the clinic to be realized, we're going to need large amounts of data. And that is both going to probably need to be a community effort uh, so that we can try and overcome some of these biases and get enough data. But it gives us the additional challenge then, how do we assimilate and compare data compared in uh, collected in different labs on different instruments? And we have this challenge of transferability of data. And yeah. as a community, I think that we need to be fighting for standards of measurement with mass spectrometry in particular, It doesn't necessarily have to be absolutely quantitative, but we need a standard by which we can give a real number to our measurements that is meaningful. What do I mean by that? Well, absolutely quantitative is uh, quoting something as micrograms per microliter or something similar, maybe more realistic, maybe to have a known standard that we can give a relative quantification to that is validated.
0: I think it's a good point, but isn't there another way to address this? You have quantitative measurements, and of course you have variability for a given individual and between individuals, but then you can compare that to reference ranges as well. For metabolites that would be quantified in large populations, then you could have ideas if you're within the usual range or not. That's actually what is commonly done in the clinics for all the metabolites that we measure in the clinics at the moment.
1: Yeah. So where you're able to quantify metabolites, then absolute quantification is definitely the way forward. Okay. At, um, we know, for instance, that in the clinical labs there are there are well designed protocols to make sure that clinical labs are measuring things within a certain error of other clinical labs. And this is definitely the way forward. I mm-hmm. suppose I'm also thinking of the much larger quantity of metabolites and particularly lipids for yes. which we have no standards for mm-hmm. and for which absolute quantification suddenly becomes much harder.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. My last question about that paper was, did you get any feedback from the metabolomics community or the medical community on this opinion piece? Have you had a lot of feedback yet?
1: I had a lot of feedback. Yeah. I had um, a lot of people asking me for access to it. Um, I had it advertised on my LinkedIn and I got a lot of positive comments. I don't know whether people are just very nice Uh so far, I haven't had any constructive criticism. Um, okay. And I, I'm actually going to open to the community that if there is constructive criticism on my opinion, then I'm actually very open to hearing it because I think that science is about always being open to improving.
0: Yes, then it's the point of an opinion piece you give your opinion and then you hear the different opinions. But exactly that's how the conversation gets going. It's good. I would move on to our next topic, which is biobanking and especially considerations for biobanking of different types of samples for precision medicine. I think you have a lot of advice for this, especially for people who want to use samples from biobanks and should maybe think of what to look out for. And of course, for people who will be involved in collecting and storing samples and maybe other activities. So, what what are points that are that are really important that we should all know about?
1: I think if you're planning a study, then talk to the experts early and. This sounds obvious, but I think most of our listeners today are probably from the metabolomics community and will be very used to people turning up with samples that are 10 years old and want them analysed and they were not collected with metabolomics in mind. To get the best quality data, you want the least technical variation. And if you want the least technical variation, you need to think about it in the planning. We, we all know that the challenge with metabolomics is that the people collecting the samples are often not the metabolomics experts and they're often busy study nurses or sometimes general nurses who have been asked to collect this as part of their everyday job when they've got X number of other more urgent tasks to do. Mm -hmm. And so I think the first place to start is actually to engage with, with the people that are working on your team. Sit down, discuss what you're after and why it's important, and actually have the discussion about what's most important, what's going to affect results, and hopefully foster a sense of community, of engagement, of enthusiasm, so that everybody's on board to follow protocols. And has a good understanding of what that protocol means. Because it's one thing to write a protocol. It's another to follow what someone else has written
0: in the same way. Absolutely,
1: Protocols are essential. They should be written. I think if you have videos, it's even better. Because then people can follow them and understand exactly what you mean. And as an individual, it's very important that you understand what your study design requires. By which I mean, if you want your perfect metabolomics research, where you want something that is going to be as representative as possible uh, of your sample, then you need very careful biobanking techniques. You need to think about temperatures. You need to think about how long you keep blood as blood, how long you keep plasma out of the fridge or preferably the the liquid nitrogen for. But if your overall aim is to have something that's really robust as a biomarker, then you may be having a conversation with the clinicians that they're more interested in biomarkers that can survive real-life clinical conditions. I, as the metabolomics person, would always rather have perfect conditions. That's mm-hmm. clear. But we have studies ongoing that for cost and practicality reasons, we made a clear decision that we're looking at a different scientific question. And mm-hmm. this may surprise people, but there's there has to be an element of reality of clinical life in your yeah. decision making.
0: Absolutely. It's really interesting also from that perspective to consider the planning as a very broad way of looking at it. So it's not just planning the details of the experiment, but really Planning what you hope that your work will turn into, maybe 15 years down the line, that maybe one day this will be used as a biomarker in the clinics. It's it's a very different question indeed than to look for the perfect signature in perfectly preserved samples. That's a really good point. I like it a lot. Of course, I can't not mention this because you talk about the importance of project planning and also in the story principle. That is my very first step. The first step is you sit down and you plan your experiment from beginning to end. So really from thinking, I want to perform this experiment, get this kind of samples and do this kind of analysis because I want to answer that question. And then this whole process is gonna be very important to determine if you have the luxury to really work on your study from beginning to end, including collecting the samples, which is not always the case, but if you can plan it as the person who does the metabolomics, or the team who does the metabolomics, if you can plan it, also considering which samples you want, how old they should get. Should you get them from a biobank? Are you collecting yourself? This kind of things. It's really crucial because for the the quality of the samples, it's going to have an impact, but also for the results of your interpretation, it's going to have an impact. So if you end up not having exactly the samples that you wanted to have, or that you would have needed to answer your question, then the whole project is a miss. Do you have experience ordering samples from a biobank yourself? Is there something that people should be careful about, you think, or that they should ask maybe the biobanks for? So definitely how the samples were collected and aliquoted
1: and um, the time points and temperature points across the sample collection chain. I think this is crucial for all I'm saying that We've got projects ongoing where we're looking for more robust biomarkers that can survive clinical practice. The success with metabolomics is often about how much you can reduce technical variability and noise. Mm -hmm. And the more variability you have, the more you end up having to throw out metabolites because they're too technically variable. Mm -hmm. And I I think there are some ISO standards for metabolomics collection now. To the best of my knowledge, they're not yet widely adopted. And I'm going to be interested to see in the future how widely adopted they are by biobanks. I think having some standardization of sample collection across biobanks is certainly going to be useful because it comes back to this intercomparability of samples.
0: Yeah. For people who are interested in samples from biobanks, my next guest will be someone who did a study using brain samples from a biobank. He insisted to discuss what you know about your samples because he he saw some interesting things on the brain samples that he was using.
1: We basically worked with our biobank to design a protocol that's suitable for metabolomics and proteomics collection. And I think this is now in use for most studies that go into the
0: biobank. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. So let's go maybe to the second paper we wanted to discuss, Um, the one focused on quality assurance, quality control on the topic, but looking into a very interesting case where one of your postdocs found that One metabolite was not what the world thought it was. You can find the link on the show notes for this episode. It's called Identification and Validation of Small Molecule Analytes in Mouse Plasma by LCMS, a case study of misidentification of a short-chain fatty acid with a ketone body. The first author is Mariel Garcia Rivera. You wanted to discuss this paper today, so can you begin maybe by telling me why this is the paper that that came to mind, why you wanted to discuss this one specifically?
1: I really like this paper because of what it says about thinking. Marielle, she's a former postdoc of ours and very talented chemist, and she Was given the job of implementing short chain fatty acid method from another lab and getting it working uh, within our lab. As she was working on it, she noticed some inconsistencies with some of her results. And in particular, she was looking at adding a couple of extra ketone bodies. And when she looked at the three hydroxybutyric acid, she found that there was an, an extra peak where there shouldn't have been. And she's somebody who is naturally curious and really thinks about data. And so she investigated this. And this peak happened to match with the same transition peak as acetic acid, which was one of the other metabolites that, that, or short-chain fatty acids that we were interested in. Sorry, HBA is, is actually a ketone body. Mm-hmm. Uh, she investigated this and found that not only was the HBA, it seemed to be suffering from in-source fragmentation in the mass spectrometer, mm-hmm. uh, but when we were analysing the plasma samples, there was a strong probability that our quantification of the acetic acid was now being affected by the, this HBA additional transition, the in-source fragment, And I really love what she did here because she found an interesting result and she followed it through and ended up just adjusting the method so that we could detect both the HBA ketone body and the acetic acid much more accurately and with confidence. And it's a great example of how quality management and good scientific observation really pays dividends in terms of improving the quality of your data. Yeah.
0: And also I think of taking ownership of the experiment that you make as well. I think there, there are some people who would say, ah, this is the protocol. I'm just following the protocol, but it's really important when you see something that doesn't quite fit to look into it and to try to understand why it's not what you expect. I think we
1: need to be celebrating analytical chemists more. <laughs> they are central to metabolomics and...
0: Of course, and that's where it begins. Always,
1: yeah, it. and we're not always appreciating mm-hmm. the hard work that they're putting in.
0: Of course. And I mean, I'm I'm not an analytical chemist, so I, I rely on the data that is provided to me by the people who measure it. Mm-hmm. And I like how the paper begins because, of course, you are a scientific paper. You always want to demonstrate the relevance of what you're discussing. So you always start with health and diseases, and it's normal, but it's true. The paper begins by saying both of those metabolite classes are very important metabolites for immune responses, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. And of course, that's true of both short-chain fatty acids and ketone bodies. And from the point of view of the work that I do in majority, which is the biological interpretation of the results, if you give me a concentration and you tell me this is this short-chain fatty acid i'm going to make a story based on let's say an increase in this metabolites in the in the sample and if you tell me we have both a short-chain fatty acid and a ketone body it's going to be a different story so the implications are huge when we think of the applications we're going to make of the data at the end so it's really important that's
1: one aspect of it and the other aspects you can imagine if you've got you know, a 10 or 20% noise level yeah. because there's an additional compound there, you could end up missing that there's a change in either or both compounds yeah. because there's there's too much variation in the data.
0: Yeah. And that's why it's really a good example of the importance of QA and QC in metabolomics. What are your main recommendations in that regard? You're involved in this working group? Or? It is a consortium. It's a consortium. MCWAC.
1: MCWAC. Yeah, so MQuAX is an international consortium of people who are really engaged in quality management in metabolomics. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to be honest and say... I got into quality management by accident. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's not something that the majority of people wake up one morning and say, "I'm going to be a quality manager." <laughs> Did you do it by accident or by necessity? Uh, well, by necessity. But I'd also say, and and here I have to thank um, my ex boss, Mark Bryant, another really talented chemist. He enthused me about thinking about data in in another way so not just the biological interpretation but how the the technical variability and the way that it was collected may be influencing the final results because of his guidance i started getting very deeply involved in this subject and the more involved you get the more excited you get by what it's then possible to do with good quality management techniques This is a huge task. We wrote a white paper on on the subject and we restricted ourselves just to quality control samples because we decided that if we we did any more, then the paper would basically be too large. It would be a book,
0: probably.
1: uh, It would be a book and (laughs) we may end up with a book. (laughs) I think that every stage of the process uh, benefits from a good quality management strategy every stage. And a colleague of mine, David Broadhurst, does this wonderful lecture on statistics where he talks about marginal gains. And this is the idea that he uses the the British Olympic cycling team as an example. And it's, it's a fantastic example to use because effectively what they did was they looked at everything. They looked at everything from the saddles that they were using to the pillows they were sleeping on so that they could get the best night's sleep. And it was a, well, we shave 1% of our time here and we say we save 0.2% of our time here. And we save perhaps 3% by doing this, but over all of these different things and these tiny, tiny incremental time savings, they ended up with the most gold medals that ever won. And uh-huh. we're doing the reverse with quality management. We're saying, okay, if we if we have a very tightly time-controlled collection procedure for our samples at biobanking, if we have this very rigorously timed and controlled sample preparation procedure for our analytical preparation, if we make sure that our batch lengths are less than X number of samples, then we may at each step be reducing the variability in, in any individual metabolite by an incremental amount. And it's obviously mm-hmm. different from metabolite to metabolite. Yeah. But over the course of the entire pipeline of metabolomics, this is going to massively improve your technical variability, and that improves your statistical power. Easiest
0: and cheapest way of doing it. Wow. And so for someone who is interested in improving their quality management, do they go to your paper or do they have other resources that they can learn from? So I would say for quality management,
1: I would never rely on one single resource. Mm -hmm. And this is partly because I think we're still in the process of learning ourselves. But if you're interested in quality management, our paper's obviously a good place to start. We're writing more papers, and by by we, I mean the MQAC Consortium. And if you're really interested, um, then go onto the MQAC website and apply to become a member. Okay,
0: we can put a link to the website on the on the show notes, then people can find it easily. Good. So I think that takes us to your favorite metabolites. So you've actually already contributed your favorite metabolite last year, because you were kind enough to speak to me in Valencia at the last metabolomics conference. So I've asked you to come up with a new favorite metabolite and tell us why it's so great. So what have you chosen today?
1: My second favorite metabolite is melatonin, also known as N acetyl 5 methoxytryptamine, but life is too short.
0: <laughs> yes, <it> is.
1: <laughs> so, most of you will already know that melatonin is produced by the pineal gland in the brain, and it's just one of the mechanisms that we use for circadian rhythm and sleep wake cycles. And it tends to increase in most people as it gets dark so that we're ready to sleep. Um, one of the interesting things is how much is actually used as extra pineal melatonin. Um, so the retina produces some melatonin. That's perhaps not so surprising given it's linked to circadian rhythms. But so does the gut, the reproductive system, and certain immune cells, in particular macrophages and mast cells. This becomes particularly intriguing when you look at melatonin's other actions in the body. So it acts as an antioxidant and it's a fantastic free radical scavenger. Uh, It's anti-inflammatory. It has a really interesting effect on the immune system because Mm -hmm. uh, it can act on cytokines when we need to ramp up the immune system. But it acts via receptors um, when that defense is no longer needed and it can actually calm down the immune system. And it's also been shown at pharmacological levels to be potentially be oncostatic, and it's now being explored as an adjunct in cancer treatments Um, and it's anti apoptotic and it's even been shown by its own metabolite AMK to potentially be a memory booster as well. So it's got all of these different mechanisms in the body um, and it's produced in various parts of the body Mm -hmm. and I, I think that as we explore the tryptophan pathway more. And as we explore the gut microbiome more, we're going to find that melatonin starts popping up in some very interesting uh, metabolic processes.
0: Thank you for this. It was really interesting. I discussed this the last time about tryptophan as well. I always find it really interesting that tryptophan is an essential amino acid. So we get it through a food. And so the microbiome gets the first pick. If we think of now all the things that melatonin does. We still have to, we're still a bit reliant on our microbiome to leave enough of, of the tryptophan to us so that we can have all these actions as well. Or, well, I didn't mention that melatonin is also consumed through the diet as well. And... I, of course, yeah, that makes sense. Then you can also take it up directly, okay? Yeah. Then it's, we it's, have more chances it's if the also... microbiome lets us. <laughs> It's also really
1: interesting chemically uh, because uh, it's uh, an indole alkaloid and um, it's an amphiphilic molecule. So mm-hmm. it can pass over plasma membranes very easily. Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to find more and more roles for melatonin in physiological processes. Yeah. But I also suspect that it will start popping up as adjunct or even uh, full treatments for certain mm-hmm conditions.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. also find it really interesting how metabolites, as we learn more about their functions, get completely different kind of personalities. So if you hear melatonin, until recently, you would have just said, oh, yeah, it's about sleep. And now we learned with you that there are many, many other roles of melatonin. And I like this a lot about metabolomics and about the study of metabolites that we realize they can do so many different things. The yeah. single metabolites has so many roles. It's wonderful. Various groups have discovered that it seems to
1: inhibit viruses entering mm-hmm. cells. And it's mm-hmm. been studied as a potential treatment for COVID-19. Again, <laughs> another use and it's antidepressive. Um, yeah. But I'd like to bring us back to the biobanking because one of the things with melatonin is, of course, it's light sensitive. So if you're interested in studying this, then you need to think about how you're collecting your samples. (laughs) Yep. And it's also phasic. So again, experimental design, if you're collecting it in different people, then you need to make sure that it's a similar time of the day.
0: Yeah. Thank you very, very much. It was a lovely discussion and thank you for being on the podcast with us.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Thank you for joining us in this discussion. I hope that this episode gave you new insights and ideas on how to plan, conduct and communicate your own metabolomics projects, and that you're also excited for the future clinical applications of metabolomics. If you'd like to continue this journey with us, make sure to register for the Metabolomist email list on the podcast webpage, the themetabolomist.com, where you can also listen to our previous episodes. If you want to learn more about how data interpretation is done, may I recommend my book, The Story Principle. You can find it on the Biocrates webshop. Lastly, for regular news on metabolomics and data interpretation, you can connect with me, Alice Limonciel, on LinkedIn, where I post on metabolites, data interpretation, bioinformatics tools, and more.